Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You got to force a raccoon to drink water for three hours to, to, <laughs> to prove that it's safe for humans, I guess. to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I strive to advance the ideas of liberty. We've got a great guest coming up today in this here episode number 88. Before we get into today's show, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a libertarian speaker, writer, and activist. She has been prominently involved in libertarian party politics. She is the author of Healing Our World in an Age of Aggression, a book that has been referenced by several past guests of the show as a major influence on their political views. She is also the author of Short Answers to the Tough Questions, which examines how to answer questions that libertarians are commonly asked. Dr. Mary Ruart, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm certainly glad to speak with you today, Ms. Ruart. And like I mentioned at the top of the show there, you have been mentioned by several past guests as an influence upon their political beliefs. But what I want to find out is what influenced your political beliefs. So you can just start off by describing when and how did your political views first begin to develop? Well, I think I was probably more of a liberal in my high school days because I felt that we should help the poor. Remember, I had a Catholic upbringing where loving your neighbor was a it was really emphasized. But by the time I got to college, I was sort of more agnostic. I was sort of starting over, if you will, because the dogma, the Catholic Church, just didn't sit well with me. And I ran into the writings of Ayn Rand, and that was very influential as well. And that combination pretty much took me to the Libertarian Party, which I actually only found in the early 1980s. I think I had joined it actually in the 70s from an article in Reason Magazine, but there wasn't any action going on in my neck of the woods until the 80s. So I got involved then. And as I started reading more about our foreign policy one day, I really, I was wondering why when we're trying to give foreign aid to help people, it actually seems to backfire and do them harm. And in contemplating that question, I had, I, I, I'm going to say, for lack of a better term, kind of a revelation. It, it struck me all of a sudden, um, this uh, understanding, if you will, that the ends and means that we use are intimately related. So when we use taxation to help the poor, either in this country or in another It actually backfires and hurts the very people we're trying to help because our means are so flawed. You know, they're part of aggression, aggression through government. And when we use aggression, 
it seems that we always end up with the fruits of aggression, which are war and poverty. And believe it or not, this is actually good news, because if we got good ends by using bad means, we'd always be tempted to use bad means. And in, in the case we're describing here, we'd always be at war with each other. We'd be taking turns being majorities and minorities, victims and aggressors. We'd be fighting with each other all the time so that we could get our good ends. But if you could only get good ends by good means, well, you're going to work peacefully and honorably, I guess you could say, honoring our neighbor's choice. And that situation you described there where, you know, we're constantly trading who's aggressors and who's the victims, that kind of sounds like the situation we have now where, you know, we'll, we'll vote for our, our whatever politician we like or so many people are trapped in this sort of left-right paradigm. We'll vote for the Republicans. We'll vote for the Democrats. So many people seem to think it's such a major difference, but all we're really doing is, is swapping aggression in a way. We're swapping what we're aggressing against people for. Some people might want to aggress more to people on drugs and then stop people from owning certain plants and that kind of thing. Other people might want to focus it on guns and preventing people from owning guns by using aggression against them. So uh, it's, it's a very interesting way you look at it, focusing on the term aggression. And that, that's something that definitely shines through in your book, Healing Our World in an Age of Aggression. You kind of seem to view this as an age of aggression, as an age where we're looking at aggression as sort of the solution to all our problems. And that does seem to be the case. Can you get a little bit more into sort of, as I mentioned, you know, your book has been highly recommended to me by several past guests. Uh, Glenn Kane Jacobs, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, yes, pro, pro yes. wrestler. Yeah, he, he mentioned your book as a big influence. Also, uh, Mike Vine, a great guy, great member of the Free State Project. Uh, I know you're a supporter of that as well. Can you yes. just, can you describe a little bit more that book specifically? What was your purpose in writing that book? How did you get inspired to write it? And why do you feel it was so influential? Well, you know, getting back to this revelation, this was a deep revelation and understanding. It, I, I've I've tried to encapsulate it, but it it doesn't say the whole thing. I mean, one of the exciting things about this was the understanding that we are hardwired for liberty. In other words, our evolutionary path is towards liberty, at least. And, you know, I'm a scientist, so this is, you know, kind of how I look at it. So if we don't blow ourselves up, we will eventually recognize that aggression doesn't serve us and we'll stop doing it, which means that we will have basically the universal peace and plenty that politicians always promise us but can never deliver. So, with this understanding, I was so excited by it. I mean, I was had this big smile on my face for about a week. I could hardly, I could hardly um, <laughs> get upset about anything because it was so exciting. And I wanted to convey this understanding with all of its facets, you know, to my libertarian friends and colleagues. So I tried to make a video, but that wasn't deep enough, if you will. And so I wrote "Healing Our World," which is the first book I had ever written and tried to convey these ideas. And I think why healing has been so popular is it, it truly is about healing. It's, it's libertarianism with heart, if you will. So that's been missing, I think. We've, we've been very intellectual about defining rights and doing the logical derivation of why it's moral, and et cetera, et cetera. But what speaks to people is heart, emotion. And, you know, people want to know that they will be taken care of if there's a problem and that and the way they know that is if we take care of others when there's a problem. And unfortunately, many libertarians didn't understand, I think, at the time I wrote this, which was in the early 90s, I don't think they understood how potent 
our philosophy was and how it would actually bring about all these things that people are always clamoring for, like helping the poor, saving the environment, um, attenuating crime. So this is what I wanted to convey. And of course, these are topics that libertarians don't normally address. They normally focus on the economics and the financial aspect, but not to the degree that it shows how it helps everyone. Basically, they were just showing that it, you know you had a more robust economy, but it didn't show how it helped the poor, for example, in any great detail. So I think what Healing Our World did is it filled that gap. And it gave libertarians hope, too, because I think when you read Healing, you get that sense that we're headed towards <laughs> a much better world and that we're, you know, it's, it's just going to be the logical and uh, biological, if you will, outcome of our evolution. I'm glad you mentioned that not focusing on sort of just the, the pure economic aspects and that kind of thing, because, you know, I think I used to take that tact, you know, maybe in, in my younger years, I would, you know, point to this study that shows the economy is better with less taxes and that kind of thing. But ultimately, that doesn't explain anything to people that doesn't really convey a moral, it doesn't convey any kind of real sense of rights. It really just says, well, I think this is better for X, Y, and Z reasons. But that really opens you up to people saying, well, yeah, I can show you these other studies where I actually think that more taxes are better or the, and that kind of thing. And you get into this whole argument over, over, you know, benefits and costs and benefits. And really, I think at some point I started to realize that's just not, it's not the right way to look at things. It's not the right way to look at our interactions with people, costs and benefit analysis. We need to look at our interactions with people and realize they're other people and realize that we need to kind of treat other people the same way, can treat them with the same rights. And you, you mentioned rights there. You, you mentioned your focus on, on individual rights. So I, I'm just curious, where do you see rights coming from? I mean, some people see them as coming from a creator. Some people just, you know, have their own view of natural rights. So how do you see that? Well, actually, in healing, I, I talked very little about rights because I, the way I derived everything was from, you know, basically from what's going to create a world of universal peace and plenty. And I used our, the example of what we, well, at least most people of my generation learned as children, which is, you know, you don't strike, uh, you know, your playmates, you don't steal their toys. Uh, if you break their toys, you replace them. <laughs> you don't lie about them or, you know, I mean, just the very basics, right? And if you look at this closely, you see it's actually the libertarian philosophy in a nutshell, which we throw out the window when we deal group to group. But most people, most people are libertarians when it comes to their individual interactions. So using that, I basically just kind of, you know, explained it from that viewpoint. And I did use a lot of studies and examples. I mean, I think those can be valuable. Um, so I, I think actually healing has probably the most extensive compilation of how liberty works in the real world. I think it remains so to this day. So I think that's another exciting aspect of the book. But, you know, really, it, it kind of I think maybe it, part of its attraction is it addresses the kinds of questions that Christians have, which I was able to address because of my Catholic background, liberals have because of my background as a liberal, um, an environmentalist, again, my background as an environmentalist. You got the full spectrum covered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and again, even today, there aren't a whole lot of books that address these issues, at least certainly not together. And even individually, unfortunately, it's, it's certainly better than it was in the 90s. But many of the things that we write as libertarians are very academic, and they're very helpful in academic circles. And I think we're winning the academic battle, but um, we're not winning hearts and minds because people simply 
don't hear us talking about helping the poor. We don't talk to them the things they're interested in, you know, saving the environment or whatever their particular item is. And the nice thing is that liberty takes care of all these things. Liberty is the best optimizer, shall we say, of protecting the things that give us a peaceful and prosperous world. So we have a beautiful multifaceted philosophy. And I think we need to, when we talk to people, find out where they're coming from and address their issues. Sure. And I, and I think you mentioned helping the poor there. And I think that's probably one of the top objections you get, you know, libertarians will get. They'll say, yeah, your, your libertarian idea sounds so great. But what about all these poor people? What about all these people that are destitute? What about these people on the streets? Who's going to help these people if you don't have the government coming in and getting some tax money and helping them out? People will say, well, you know, libertarianism sounds fantastic, but at the end of the day, it's a heartless philosophy because it it doesn't actually have a system, have a method for helping the poor. So what would you say to that? How does a libertarian philosophy actually benefit people that are poor? Well, liberty is what helps the poor create wealth. Government regulation is what drives them out of business, literally, and out of their jobs. And this is why it's so much fun to talk about the Institute for Justice, because it goes in and sees these minorities, because they are mostly minorities, who can't afford to fight the system, get a, an expensive license, for example, taxi cab licenses in, in New York City cost you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And who can afford that? You, know, you, can, you might have a car and be able to have a little taxi service, drive your neighbors around, but you sure can't do it if you have to spend that kind of money for a license. It's crazy. My aunt actually owns a medallion, a taxi medallion in New York City. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't drive a taxi anymore. She did at one point, but um, she, she's holding on to it for now because because it's worth, I think they valued it at over a million dollars, like something like $1.5 million she could probably get for this thing. And she's still holding on to it. But uh, yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, what, and that's just for the privilege of driving a taxi in New York City. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. luckily, a lot of cities are, are and we're seeing these ride sharing services like Lyft and Uber, which I use here in LA, but there's other cities where they're banning it. And now you have to rely on these taxi services. I mean, my, my girlfriend went to Las Vegas yesterday for a work trip. And she realized when she got there, when she looked up on her phone, that there's no Lyft in Las Vegas. Uh, I don't think they allow Lyft or Uber or any kind of ride sharing there. And she ended up getting taken on a ride. Um, and she, she only really realized afterwards that she totally got ripped off by this cabbie. She got just kind of driven around in a roundabout way, didn't go to a direct route to her destination. It wasn't until her ride back that she realized, wait a minute, this, uh, this I got totally screwed over before. And, and I don't think that ever would have happened if you were in a Lyft or in an Uber where you have the map there. And, you know, you have, a, you have a very sort of open and transparent system where she basically has no recourse. I mean, I guess she could have thought of it at the time and, and written the guy's name down. But, she you know, she's just trying to, to get to her business meeting at that point. And the, the whole licensing system, and it applies in so many industries, uh, there are so many ripple effects from that, that that I think people just don't realize on the surface. Well, that's right. And so what we do here in this country is we put the poor out of business by regulations and licensing laws. And then we say, oh, you poor person, let us give you this little tiny welfare check. We're so generous. You know, I mean, we, it's really terrible. I mean, these, these people are, and, and, you know, the people who are in that situation, they, they have this sense, you know, that they're being cheated somehow, which, and, and, and what they're doing because they don't understand how they're being cheated. They, they blame the corporations or, you know, the, the people who are making money, not realizing who their real enemy is. And and that's very sad. I, I'd love to do more on that because I think that's once that's understood, 
I, I think that uh, things would change in this country. You know, sometimes in other nations, they understand that because they have to, you know, pay bribes to officials to get <laughs> what they want to get, um, you know, a license or something. They have to really know how to work the system to survive. And, and so they're more aware, I think, than maybe we are in the U.S. We're, we're, we've kind of gradually gotten into this and we think it protects us somehow. And yet it doesn't. I wonder if you heard, uh, speaking of licensing, have you heard about this guy, the diabetic, uh, I believe he's called the Diabetes Warrior, who was fighting the, the state of North Carolina for some time. They had shut him down. It, what it made me think of it is you mentioned the Institute of Justice earlier, and they were actually defending him. Uh, he actually had a gag order placed upon him because he had a blog where he was just kind of detailing his experience as a diabetic. He was able to get himself off of his his uh, insulin medication by just changing his diet, changing his exercise routine, and he was simply sharing that information with people on his blog. And the board of some something or other in North Carolina, Board of Busybodies, I guess, uh, they came in and, and actually shut down his blog for some time or told him that basically instituted a gag order. And he, he did actually defeat that recently, uh, thanks to the Institute of Justice. Have you heard about that case? Yes, I have. And it's really, in, in many ways, a landmark case because, you know, I was in the pharmaceutical industry for some time and we always were, had to be very careful about what we said because the FDA monitors all of our uh, everything we say, <laughs> even in the name of the drug, you know, it can't imply anything. So, uh, and, you know, you've seen these advertisements where the list of side effects goes on and on and on, you know, that's all dictated by the FDA. And one of the things they also dictate is if you have a nutritional supplement or something like that, and you want to say that it does something, then according to the FDA, you've turned the nutritional supplement into a drug. And now you have to go through this billion dollar development process and take about 15 years on average to, um, to get the FDA approval to say those words. And that's part of what they were up against. This, this person was up against. Also, most of the licensing laws in most states if you give nutritional advice and you're not a registered dietitian, then you are practicing medicine without a license. So the licensing laws will take you down there. And it's ridiculous because, you know, uh, if, if, I, if I went out and tried to market water, bottled water, for example, to prevent or cure dehydration, you know, I could be I could be sued under those laws. The regulators could take me down. It's you, so crazy. You would have to have some FDA approved study that proved that water H two O this this crazy substance could actually help people with hydration instead of just making that statement. Oh, not just any study. No, no. I'd have to go through the regulatory process. And the reason it takes so long is first you have to show that your product has a certain purity. And you can't just show it's pure. You have to walk through a number of steps that the FDA wants you to do. Then what you have to do is you have to do certain animal studies to make sure that you know the dose of water that would be dangerous. And <laughs> and on and on and on. I, I mean, I could I could spend I could spend hours talking about this. You, you gotta force a raccoon to drink water for three hours to, to, to prove that it's safe for humans, I guess, or something. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you'd have to do long term studies. So, you know, you'd have to do lifetime studies in rats so that if somebody took this, they drank all the time. You have to prove that it doesn't hurt them. Sure. Well, you certainly are, are familiar with this area as, you know, you spent many years as a research scientist uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. So I know you you had to deal with a lot of this stuff firsthand. So you're you're not just kind of a, you didn't just read an article and talking about this so, so people know. Mary has, has extensive experience dealing with this exact issue. Let's talk a little bit more about the FDA and how they kind of hinder the ability of people to get medicines that they need. 
I know you've written about this, but I recently saw the movie Dallas Buyers Club. I'm usually a little behind the times when it comes to movies, but I saw that movie just a couple months ago, and I think it's a really good example of how, you know, in this case, Matthew McConaughey was playing an AIDS patient, and and you know he couldn't get drugs that he needed, and he didn't he didn't want the drugs that were really being forced upon him, and and then he actually ended up kind of getting the drugs underground in a sense by going to Mexico where where they didn't have those kind of regulations. So can you just describe a little bit more about how the FDA's insane process, as you described here? really does hinder people and hinder people's ability to get the help they need because many people will come and say, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but you need some kind of process to test this stuff or else people are just going to be out there taking drugs and, and dying all over the place. So, so what's the solution if not the FDA? Ah, well, third-party testing would be a good idea because, you know, the FDA doesn't do any testing on its own. It just dictates what testing the pharmaceutical companies have to do. And so after you've done this 14 years or so, 15 years of testing, what we used to do is we loaded an entire truck up with paper, and then that would go to the FDA, and then they would take, yeah, yeah, and then they would take- literally a truck? Literally a truck. Wow. Literally. I think by the time I left, it was two trucks. (laughs) I mean, it it would take years for them just to go through all of that. Uh, Yes, then they take a year or so. I think it was averaging about a year when I was in the business, um, and to go through it, and then they make a decision whether you can take the drug or not. Uh, AIDS patients didn't have that long to wait. And uh, as we were working on AIDS drugs, what the AIDS community did, I don't think this was addressed in the movie, they actually hired black market chemists to make the same drugs we were working on because, of course, they knew about them. Yeah, that wasn't in the movie. Yeah, we might still be in animal testing or early human testing, right? So they, they hired people to make these drugs, which, of course, was a patent violation. And then they distributed them in the AIDS community, which was all kinds of violations. Uh, but they did it quite well, actually. They, they did it, I think, probably about as safely as they could do it. And it, it, was, uh, it was pretty much ignored by the FDA. The FDA knew about it. The, the Dallas situation was a little different. I think they decided this was an easy hit, you know, so they, they took it. But you know, they didn't do it in California. They let that community go ahead and distribute. And I think they knew if they shut them down, there'd be such a hue and cry that all this red tape you have to go through to get something life-saving on the market would, would be, uh, you know, basically uh, would be well known and people would object. And the cancer patients have tried tried to do it differently. They actually took the FDA to court and said, you know, if we're terminally ill, let us take drugs that are in process. And the courts ruled, they, because uh, that I should back up a little bit and say that the patients argued that the constitutional guarantee to a right to life gave them the power to take whatever they had to take to, you know, try to keep themselves alive. And the courts ruled that we do not have the constitutional right to save ourselves with unapproved drugs. Wow, that's just awful. I mean, you think at, at the minimum, and I think there have been, I've seen some pushes for some laws, some exemptions on this recently, but you'd think if nothing else, you could at least make that exemption for people that are going to die in the next year. I mean, they have, they've got nothing to lose, even if the drug isn't proven, even if it is experimental. Well, I mean, their other option is just to be in pain or to die. So, I mean, the human thing would to do would be to say just to let these people take these drugs. And when we talk about drug testing and how you're not saying we shouldn't have drug testing or anything like that, of course we should. Uh, it comes back to uh, you know this this topic, the subject that you you focus on so much of aggression. The problem isn't drug testing. The problem 
problem is that this one organization, this monopoly, the FDA, is basically aggressing on the rest of the country and threatening you with violence if you are to do anything outside of their process when it comes to drugs. And that's the real problem. As you always point out, you keep going back to this bit, but it's, it's accurate. It's the aggression that's the source of the problems. It's not the, you know, the, the fact of drug testing or it's not that libertarians are against drug testing. That's right. And and even more so, the FDA has really changed the way that we look at prevention and treatment. It used to be that we tried to prevent things. But as the FDA grew after the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act, it became it became so difficult to get a drug to market that drug companies couldn't always develop life-saving drugs, you know, and recoup their investment. And And it's even worse with prevention because what started happening is the FDA started requiring nutritional supplements to go through the same process if they wanted to make claims. And Congress actually got more mail on this issue in two separate time periods than any other issue. Uh, People said, this is ridiculous. You know, we want our supplements and the FDA had to back off, but uh, they're still trying. (laughs) And um, so we're going to, you know, we're going to face a problem because you know, I was I was a scientist back in the time when we didn't have genetic manipulation of animals, right? So we had to create diseases, and our rats were pretty healthy. And the reason they were healthy, in part, was because we gave them all the vitamins and, and supplements they needed. So to make them sick, to make them get heart disease, or to make them get diabetes, or to make them get liver disease, we had to take away some of their nutrients, that's how we created our animal models for drug testing. Now, this tells you something. It tells you that if you can have optimal nutrition, you can prevent a lot of disease. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. So the pressure that the FDA has put on the nutritional supplement industry uh, and has prevented people from knowing about important nutritional advances is really detrimental. For example, in the early 1980s, we knew that the B vitamin folic acid prevented neural tube defects. Um, and those are like spina bifida, all those really horrible birth defects that put children in institutions, right? But the FDA would not let folic acid manufacturers talk about that. Even when the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, another government agency, started recommending that women of childbearing age take folic acid, the FDA still would not let manufacturers talk about even the recommendation of this other government agencies. (laughs) That's unbelievable. Yeah, and then what it did is after it realized that, you know, they had to do something, they demanded that certain foods be supplemented with folic acid, which isn't as good as giving someone a supplement because when you give a supplement, you know what's in it. You know, when you put it in food, you don't know how much food the women are getting. So it's it's really sad. Mary, I've got just a few more questions, but first... I want to take a minute to tell everyone about our sponsor. If you are frustrated with your current insurance, you need to check out Health Excellence Select. Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance cost double and my deductible skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians, and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance. 
and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar. That's right, every Monday to Friday, we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Mary, one other thing I want to touch on here, the subject that's been all the rage lately, I guess. Um, everywhere I look on my social media, someone's got an opinion on it, and that's the vaccine controversy. I, I don't even know if, it, if it's a controversy, but it's, it's a subject that's certainly come up lately, I guess, with the, the breakout of measles at Disneyland. And you know, so many people are justifiably concerned. But I think there's justifiable concern on both sides. I think many people um, are concerned about what might be in vaccines, about the possibility of getting injuries from vaccines, whereas other people are legitimately concerned perhaps about their children acquiring diseases that they shouldn't be having to acquire. So, so what is your view on that? I, I know that you've written about this a lot lately, but you know, how do you see the balance between the efficacy and the safety of vaccines as it relates to sort of, uh, I guess, libertarianism? Because I know that I've seen even libertarians argue that, well, you know, when it comes to vaccines, it's a public health issue. And, you know, you can't you can't have people just wandering around unvaccinated because they'll, they just will pose a danger to other people. So I've seen some vague arguments, at least for even forced vaccination, from even libertarian circles. And if you're getting them from even libertarian circles, you know you're going to get them from the other circles, too. So so what is your view on that? Well, I think if we allow the government to tell us what we have to inject into our bodies, uh, that we are really, really asking for trouble <laughs> because you don't know what's there. And even, even the most benevolent bureaucrat uh, wanting to protect someone by, say, giving them a vaccine can't know that uh, there won't be a problem in a particular individual. Vaccines have side effects, just like every other drug. You know, there's nothing, there's no drug that doesn't have a side effect. So what you're going to do if you force people to take vaccines, is you're going to have a number of people who get the disease that the vaccine is supposed to prevent because that's one of the side effects usually. They will have an allergic reaction, which would be even even more deadly. It could kill them. And, it, you know, a lot of people do die from, from that. So it's not, it's not something where it's a totally safe thing to take. So when you try to force vaccination, you're, you're basically doing it with the knowledge that some people are going to die or be seriously disabled. And if you look at the flip side of that, certainly for something like measles, there is no reason to do that. I mean, I got measles as a child and what happened in a lot of families is they went to measles parties to spread it because you you wanted, especially your female children, to have that um, immunity because if they got pregnant and then they got measles, it would really be hard on the fetus. So, you know, and that's good immunity, good in the sense that it lasts for a lifetime pretty much. Now, with these vaccines, we're finding that it doesn't last for a lifetime. So all of this vaccination that we've had is not necessarily protecting us. There's probably a really substantial part of the population that thinks they're protected and they aren't. 
And then that brings a question is, should you give multiple vaccinations throughout the life of a person? Well, again, there's there's some risk there. And the biggest risk, that which doesn't get talked about much, even in libertarian circles, is the fact that we give close to three dozen injections into children before they're you know, three or four years old. And and that really, their immune system is not always capable of handling that. And we really haven't gotten a good fix on how how dangerous that might be. So there's a lot of things going on. Yeah, and I mean, I'm just a layman here. I'm obviously not a, a research scientist or a doctor or anything like that. But from my point of view, if you're giving all these vaccines at the exact same time, and there is a complication, well, now you might have trouble identifying the source of the complication. Whereas at least if you kind of administered them in a, in a different way, and that you had an adverse reaction, you can say, okay, we know it was definitely this specific vaccine that this person had, had an adverse reaction to. But when you're just lumping them all together, and if something does go wrong, you, know, you mentioned side effects of vaccines. And, and when I have these conversations, people tend to just gloss over them. And they say, well, yeah, sure, with anything, there's going to be issues, yada, yada, yada. But anyway, cost benefit wise, it still makes sense to take the vaccine. That may be true. I mean, I I think that's a decision for people to make. But you can't just act like vaccines are as safe as a cup of water. I mean, uh, I mean, the FDA (laughs) might want us to test the water more than the vaccine at this point. But um, but yeah, I mean, there there are identifiable problems that people have had by taking vaccines. That's undeniable. And and I think people will kind of throw out the autism thing as the sort of that's that's a red herring to me. I I don't talk about autism when I'm talking about the safety issues of vaccines. I talk about the actual problems that people have seen. People have gotten Guillain-Barre syndrome. People have experienced all sorts of nerve issues Uh, might not be extremely common but it does happen and we can't just pretend that there's not a risk there. Right. And that's part of the reason that that the government has taken over the liability of vaccines because the manufacturers said, we're not going to make them anymore because, you know, it's, it's simply too, uh, creates too much liability for us versus, you know, what we can get for the vaccine. So they aren't, you know, they don't want to do it. And you can see why, because, Vaccines are biological products. They have, and biological products injected into you can cause uh, an immune reaction that is not the one you're looking for. You know, you can you can make antibodies to the components of vaccines, and the next time you get one, you can have kind of a serious reaction. So we just don't we don't know enough. But the good news about this, Mark, really, the good news that I think it's it's hard for a lot of people to see, but the good news is we don't have to force people to take vaccines to be protected. There is, you know, enough people feel comfortable taking them, you know, that there's a certain level of protection. And that is probably why, even though the vaccines don't last as long as people think they do, that we haven't had much in the way of measles or other childhood diseases in quite a while, because, you know, we have, we have, uh, good health in general as children, although <laughs> I could talk about that too. Well, sure. I, I guess it depends on it depends on what you're feeding your children nowadays, right? Yes, but but by and large, you know, we have a, a fairly um, sanitary, shall we say, healthy society. And if you look at the graphs of people who have died from these childhood diseases, you see they were going down before the vaccine, and the vaccine's a tiny blip on a curve that's already going down. Right. The vaccine for, for measles didn't come around to the 60s, isn't that right? That might be. I'm not sure. I, I think it was the early 60s. I'm, I'm not the expert here, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was long after the, I guess, the, the real measles outbreaks were, were really going on. It was already dropping significantly when the get vaccine came out. 
Yeah, it's been dropping really since the early 1900s. Uh, there's some really good graphs on the web. If you look them up, you know, uh, you can kind of see you have measles incidents since 1900 or something. You'll get some really good graphs. Now, Mary, as I mentioned a couple times in the show, your book has been very influential. It's influenced several of my past guests. But I'm wondering if you have a book recommendation for anybody out there that might just be hearing this interview other than your own, of course, which we'll link to in our show notes over at linesofliberty.com. Do you have any book you would recommend to people who are maybe just getting interested in the ideas of liberty? Maybe they hear this interview with Mary Ruart and they say, oh, okay, this Mark guy, he, he might be crazy, but she actually makes sense. So <laughs> what would you recommend to people out there? Well, you know, there's there's so many books out there. Um, if I might paint this with a rather broad stroke, what I'd like to do, for example, is people who are interested in the environment, I would like them to go ahead and go to the publications from PERC at P-E-R-C dot org. Especially the ones I like are by Terry Anderson. You know, he's got so much on the environment and I think this is an issue that we don't deal with well. So I would definitely recommend that. And I'd also recommend that your listeners go to the Institute for Justice website, ij.org, and go to the economic freedom issues. And what you'll see there is how the Institute is helping people who have been regulated out of business or have, you know, the government's attempting to regulate them out of business have gone to IJ and really uh, been able to push back the big hand of government. I think this is the kind of thing that is where we need to go as libertarians. We need to educate ourselves about how government is hurting the poor and how only libertarians are coming to their rescue, because, of course, both Democrats and Republicans believe in regulation. And with the environment, of course, liberty saves the environment. And that's that's not being put out there very much. You know, the elephant population is growing in places where the natives have property rights in their elephants. But it, where the bans are, it's decreasing dramatically. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are so potent for libertarians to know. So that's that's the kind of recommendation I'd like to make to your listeners. Well, that's great. And yeah, I think that the issue of the environment is another one of those tough issues that can be very difficult to explain to people how we would sort of view that working in a libertarian context. It's, it's an issue we discussed on the show before. And, and I think it's important to have ways to address all these various concerns that people have, because I think a lot of the objections to people have to libertarianism, it's not necessarily the moral part. I mean, I, I can pretty much convince people, yeah, you shouldn't steal from your neighbor, and they, they're all with me. It's only when you get into these bigger issues and they say, yeah, but, but what about the environment? But what about the drug industry? What about this and that? And that's where they, they're the only solution they see is these government entities, because it's the only solution that's really been presented to them. So I think it is very important for people like yourself uh, and people like Terry Anderson out there giving real solutions to a lot of these problems, because the solutions are there. We just just maybe need to do a better job of effectively communicating them. And uh, Mary, you certainly are an effective communicator yourself. I'm, I'm glad you are a voice for liberty. I'm glad you've got your book out there. Uh, I know you've had a couple editions of the book. Are, are, you, are you planning any other additions to the to the Healing Our World or uh, any any other books ahead for you? Yes, there's going to be a new edition of Healing Our World. It's being published jointly with Sunstar Press, which is my mark, and the International Society for Individual Liberty, which um, is, is, of course, a great organization, ISIL.org. I should say I'm chair, so of course I think it's a great organization. And I will recommend one book because there's one that's kind of different. The president of the International Society for Individual Liberty is Ken Schoolin, and he wrote an illustrated free market fable for his college class, which is very popular, called The Adventures of Justice. 
Jonathan Gullible. It's really different. <laughs> and it's a fun, it's a fun thing to share, I think, with with young people and people who really don't want to read a big libertarian book. So if you're looking for something small to give your libertarian friends or your non-libertarian friends, I should say, to get them started, that might be a good one. And give it to your libertarian friends, too, while you're at it. Everybody can always use more ammunition in this conversation we're having. So, uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Was, it was great to talk to you. You're so knowledgeable on, on so many issues, and we could probably go on for hours and hours and hours. But at some point, we do need to wind the show down. Before I let you go, why don't you just take a second to give everybody a summary of where they can find everything you're doing, your website, how they can find you on social media, how they can connect with you, and how they can find all your books. Well, I have two Facebook sites. One is a fan page, one's a personal page, but they sort of both work as libertarian pages. And you certainly can go to my website, which is ruart.com, R-U-W-A-R-T.com. And there's a lot of free stuff on my website, uh, excerpts from my book. Actually, Healing Our World, the 1992 version is there in its entirety for free if you feel like you'd like to read before you buy or just read. (laughs) Also, you can go to the Advocates for Self-Government. The website is theadvocates.org and sign up for their newsletter, The Liberator Online. I have a web column there called Short Answers to the Tough Questions. So that's where that book came from. Very cool. Well, Dr. Mary Ruart, like I said, I'm glad you're a voice out there. I'm glad you're so active in this conversation and you're always just putting stuff out there and being an active part of it. And that's what we need. That's what we need to push this stuff forward and change people's hearts and minds because that's the only way we're really going to make any change in the world. And you are certainly a big part of that. Dr. Mary Ruart, I wish you the best of luck and thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Mark. And thank you for what you're doing for Liberty. Thank you very much. That's, that's a hell of a, uh, an endorsement, Mr. Ruart. So take care. Bye-bye. Wow, guys, what a great guest Mary Ruart was, and she takes a really thoughtful approach to the ideas of liberty and how to present them to other people. Uh, It's an interesting approach, which focuses on the concept of aggression, the idea of using physical violence on others in any situation other than self-defense. Um, it's the, basically the libertarian non-aggression principle, something that is basically the core tenet of libertarianism. And Mary makes a great point when she says so many problems in our society can be traced back to the aggressive actions taken by governments and, more importantly, advocated by the citizens of those governments. If your neighbor or your brother or your sister or your parents knowingly support a politician, for example, that openly advocates for the war on drugs, well, that person is effectively aiding and abetting aggression against their fellow man. And look at the results. Billions of dollars wasted, millions of people in jail, the vast majority of whom have not aggressed against anyone else themselves. They are essentially innocent people. And they're locked behind bars for simply possessing a plant. These are acts of aggression and support for these things, financial support. Obviously, we all financially support it because our our taxes are coercive. We have no choice but to pay them. But to knowingly support this, to knowingly support politicians, well, these are aggressive acts. You know, actions do have consequences. Voting for a politician that supports the war on drugs has a consequence. And these are the places we need to focus. But we also need to look a little bit deeper. We need to ask, why? Why do people advocate such terrible things? Is it because they're bad people? Well, no, I don't think most people are bad people per se. I mean, most of the people we interact with every day are not physically assaulting us. And yet, 
when they go home and, and they talk politics, they may really be advocating it in a way, depending on the policies that they support. But ultimately, people aren't thinking rationally. They're not thinking rationally about the consequences of their actions, of the policies they support, about their interactions with their fellow man. That's what we need to advocate. We need to advocate a society of reason. And, and when you use reason, when you actually think about rights and individual rights, well, you're going to come to the conclusion that liberty is not just the quote-unquote most efficient way in the cost-benefit analysis. No. And it probably is. <laughs> a lot of evidence seems to support that it is. But no, liberty is the only moral situation. Individual rights is a moral imperative of mankind. But when we just come up with policies purely on a cost-benefit analysis and don't think about individual rights, sure, that's when we're going to get tyrannical policies. Many people may say the war on drugs is great because it, it goes after drugs and they're bad. Well, okay. What, what moral belief caused you to have that viewpoint that you can essentially advocate violence against people who have not violated anyone else's rights? I don't know if it's something we can figure out in the course of this podcast, but it's the way we need to look at things and it's the way we need to advocate other people look at things. And that's what I strive to do here each and every week. I'm going to keep doing it later in this week when I have Lions of Liberty's own John Odermatt back on the show for the second edition of our feature, The Felony Report, where we look at John Odermatt's weekly column, Felony Friday. We look at the past few weeks, we review some of the stories, and we just talk about the immoral implications, as we always do here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. So I do hope you will come back and join us then. The first episode was a great hit. You can, of course, find that one at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast, where you can find our entire archive. And, of course, guys, there are so many ways to connect with us. Every week we got a new way for you. This week we have a YouTube channel, finally. That's right. Look for us on YouTube. We'll start posting some of our podcasts there, maybe get some other videos up. If you have any suggestions, feel free to hit us up. Hit me up, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. You can drop me an email anytime with suggestions about what you want to hear on the show, what you want to see us talk about, or maybe what you want to see us do on YouTube. We are open to ideas my friends and there are so many ways to connect with us on social media at twitter at lions of liberty find us on google plus at facebook now facebook.com slash lions of liberty not only that but we have the lions of liberty forum on facebook if you want to hop in and interact with myself interact with our other great contributors some of our past guests are even in there so come and find the lions of liberty forum we will of course link to all this stuff on the show notes for the show over at lionsofliberty.com can go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio and subscribe to us on there. And if you do, hey, maybe you could leave us a rating and review. That would be lovely because the more you guys do stuff like that, the more it will provide an opportunity for other people out there to find the show and to push this conversation forward. Of course, you can listen to us at lrn.fm, libertytalk.fm. There are no shortage of methods by which you can hear this show. Until this coming Thursday when I talk to John Odermatt for the Felony Report, I bid you farewell, and I'd like you to live long and live free. Tennis editing and mastering, John.